Well, good morning, Living Hope. It's good to see everybody here with us today. If you would grab your Bibles and turn with me, please, to the book of Ephesians. Today we're going to be working through Ephesians chapter 6, verses 15 and 16. Uh, But as you turn there, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the chair underneath you. Your phones will have Scripture on the screen to follow along as well. But friends, before we get started, let's go to the Lord in prayer one more time. You are an awesome God in this place. Father, you are the sovereign Lord of all. So we come to you again, Father. We continue in this atmosphere of adoration and worship, asking, Lord, that your spirit would speak to every person under the sound of my voice today. God, get this broken vessel out of the way, and may it be the Holy Spirit that moves and works and speaks. Father, we ask your grace and blessing upon all that happens this morning. In your magnificent name we pray. Amen. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 15 and 16 here in just a moment. But guys, as we work our way through this topic of spiritual warfare and this passage of Scripture about the armor of God, we understand that the Christian needs to be ready to move forward in this world with the equipment that God gives us for spiritual battle. And the Christian needs to learn how to protect themselves with what God gives us, with what Paul describes specifically in this passage of Scripture. Paul tells us, and sometimes in this passage it feels even just a little bit repetitive. He says, I need you to stand, okay? And it feels like it's a little bit defensive. He says, withstand all of the schemes of the enemy. But we're also ready to advance, to move forward in this world as followers of Jesus Christ and inside of this spiritual battle. Guys, Jesus actually told his disciples once, that the gates of hell would not be able to prevail against them. Gates are a defensive structure, and he says those gates will not be able to withstand the advance of the disciples of Jesus Christ and of the kingdom of God. This means that God's people and God's kingdom are on the move forward. Guys, the more I think about this, and this has been in my head for a long time, one way or another, I believe that courage and endurance may be the most necessary Christian virtues right now. Courage and endurance. It's even part of how Paul finishes this passage in chapter 6. So we ground ourselves in the truth of Jesus Christ and who He is and all that He has done for us. And we become convinced of the rightness and the goodness of the cause of Jesus Christ, and then we're bold to face our enemy come what may. The kind of courage the Christian shows, though, is different than what the world would call courage or boldness. It's different. It's actually described in this passage that we're dealing with over these handful of weeks. Now, all of this that we're reading, that we're talking about. It's the language, language of struggle and warfare, but it should never be the language of fear and anxiety. And I know that happens when we talk about spiritual warfare and we talk about principalities and powers and rulers over this present darkness. I know sometimes that sets us off a little bit. We don't know quite what to do with it. 
This is the language of struggle, but it isn't the language for the follower of Jesus Christ for fear and anxiety. Guys, when Jesus was preparing his disciples for his crucifixion, they didn't expect him to die even though he had predicted it. And he's preparing them the closer he gets to the night of his betrayal and the day of his crucifixion. He actually prepares them for that as their role as his people. And he encourages them with his peace. One of the things that Jesus says at that time is in John 16 verse 33, Jesus says this. I have said these things to you, essentially preparing them for all that's to come. That in me you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Take heart, be at peace. Let that fear and anxiety and worry go because he has overcome the world. Our risen King, Jesus Christ, is the victorious King. He is not just will be, but he is the victorious king. But today we wrestle with spiritual forces that are working against his will. So today, guys, what we're going to do is we're going to put on a couple of things. We're going to put on the gospel of peace. They're described in this passage of Scripture as shoes. And the image is that we are ready to go and to take the good news of Jesus Christ and the peace that comes from that. It's a very particular kind of peace. We're ready to go and take it with us wherever we go. So we take up the, uh, or we put on the shoes of the readiness of the gospel of peace, and then we take up the shield of faith. The shield of faith, it is described as a shield, as Paul puts it, because our enemy has all kinds of ways of creating, creeping doubt in our God. Our enemy has all kinds of ways of doing that. So Paul says there are ways of keeping that from happening, of shielding us from the breaking, the cracking of our faith, our trust in Jesus Christ. So we take up the shield of faith. So let's read through this passage of Scripture. Let's go back to verse 13, pick up a little bit of the context, and then we'll read through verses 15 and 16 as well. So Ephesians chapter 6, verse 13. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Every flaming, dangerous projectile that he hurls at you, you can protect yourself from with the shield of faith. It's a fascinating concept. So he says, the shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. What a provocative phrase, the readiness given by the gospel of peace. The New Living Translation takes that and it maybe reorders it in a way that makes a little bit more sense to us. It says this, the peace that comes from the good news so that you will be fully prepared. The peace that comes from the good news so that you will be fully prepared. I love the concepts here in this passage. There is peace. 
In the kingdom of God, there is peace. When we talk about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, there is peace. When we talk about the promise of God in the Old Testament, there is the promise of this robust and powerful well-being of peace that is given to us in right relationship with God. There is peace. So we need to understand what Scripture means, what Paul means when he speaks of this kind of gospel peace, the good news of Jesus Christ. So there is peace, but specifically peace that comes from right relationship with Jesus Christ. The peace that comes from resting in the sovereign goodness of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. It's this kind of peace that we're dealing with. And that we need to be ready to carry this kind of peace with us everywhere that we go. So there's a lot going on here, guys. So what are we talking about when we talk about the biblical concept of peace? We're speaking especially of peace in the context of our walk with Jesus Christ. When Scripture, both New Testament and Old, speaks of peace, it's far more than just the absence of conflict or difficulty. A lot of times we may use the word peace in those kinds of contexts. We just kind of want the, the, the struggling, uh, the violence, whatever it is, we just kind of want that to stop. And when the struggle stops... We want to call that peace. Well, that is peace, but there's so much more to it when Scripture speaks of peace, especially in context with Jesus Christ. The Old Testament idea of peace is robust. It is this word that most of us know to some degree or have heard often. It's this Old Testament word, shalom. That's the word for peace in the Old Testament. But what it means is that when I wish you peace or shalom. I am wishing you total blessing and well-being in relationship with God. So it's not just, I hope you have a restful afternoon. (laughs) I hope the conflict stops for you here for a little while. It's, I hope you learn how to flourish in your relationship with God. It is well-being. It is goodness in relationship with Him. So this context of in Christ is critical. We don't just, as Christians, want some version of downtime for us and for other people, but we are praying for and we are working for this sense of well-being in the kingdom of God, this robust sense of what what is possible in living with Jesus Christ, even in a complicated and difficult and confusing world. The kind of peace that is possible with Jesus Christ, as it is described in Scripture, guys, is almost unbelievable. And I use that term on purpose. When we learn what it is, when we hear what Scripture says about it, when we hear what Jesus says about it, there's something inside of us that says, I don't know if that's even really possible. I mean, have you watched the news? Do you know what's going on? And you're telling me that this kind of peace is possible. So we hear what Jesus says. We hear what Scripture says about this kind of peace, and then we're being told, get ready and take that kind of peace into a world that doesn't know it, into a world that is rioting for peace and doesn't know it. Here's part of what Jesus says. In that passage in John 16, we read earlier, a couple of chapters before that, John chapter 14, verse 27, part of the same conversation Jesus has with his disciples. Jesus says this, Peace 
I leave with you. My peace I give you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, (laughs) neither let them be afraid. Don't let your hearts be troubled because the peace that's been given to you is not the kind of peace the world is searching for. It's not the kind of peace the world thinks it can give us. Jesus, what I give you is different. It is completely different. Listen, guys, the kind of peace that is given by this world or that this world wants to create is always on its own terms and it's some version of power and submission. Some group of people will walk into power and say, vote for us, support us, give us your money, and what we're going to do is we're going to solve all of this for you. It is some version of power and coercion, power and submission. That's the kind of peace the world thinks it can give you, and all that is is turmoil, strife, frustration, and anger. It is some version of popularity and compliance. More and more, the pressure is felt upon us in normal conversations as well as online and in social media to only say the right kinds of words about the right kinds of things. So the world says there will be peace if you say what I tell you to say, if you think what I tell you to think. It is power, it is compliance, it is popularity, and it is submission. That's the kind of peace this world wants to give. But Jesus... Jesus offers a peace that satisfies the deepest longings of the human soul. It can be in our lives now a genuine taste of that eternal, perfect peace we will have with him for all of eternity. It really can be. It roots our lives in the one foundation that just cannot be moved. There's that magnificent passage near the end of the book of Hebrews that says that you and I belong to the only kingdom in all of existence that can never be shaken. Can never be shaken. It doesn't matter what kind of powers on this world gather themselves against the kingdom of God. They can't touch it. It cannot be shaken. It is stronger than every storm this world brings. Again, in the book of Hebrews, the image is it's an anchor for our souls. It is the peace of God. It is the peace with God that lasts with us through this life and into eternity. My peace I give you, Jesus says. And then I love the way the Apostle Paul speaks of this kind of peace in the book of Philippians. The book of Philippians, if you did not know, was written while Paul was in prison. So next time you read that book, read that from the perspective of someone chained to a Roman guard behind bars. Okay? And it's in that book where he says, rejoice. And again, I say, rejoice. And he speaks of peace in Philippians chapter 4 in this incredible fashion. Philippians 4, verses 7 and 9, he says this. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. In verse 8, he says, whatever is true and good and noble and right and worthy, think about these things. And then in verse 9, he says, what you have learned and received and heard from me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. 
See, I said the peace that Jesus promises us is almost unbelievable. It's so much so that Paul says, the peace that God leaves with you surpasses your understanding. I need a peace that surpasses my understanding of things. And I've always taken that passage of Scripture, it it, it surpasses my understanding. That means that I can never concoct it. I can never make it. I can never create the kind of peace that only Jesus can give. So guys, what we are offered, the kind of peace with God through Jesus Christ, spills over into this kind of comfort in our lives, into this kind of meaning and stability inside of the human heart. But it isn't just in this passage about what we're given. We need to understand what that is so that when you turn around and walk outside of these doors and into the rest of our lives' contexts, we're not taking the world's kind of peace with us. We're taking Christ's kind of peace with us. So it isn't primarily about what we are given. It is primarily a tool used in spiritual warfare, right? That's the context here. So why is peace part of spiritual warfare? Because our enemy is the author of chaos and havoc. Chaos and havoc that destroys the individual heart and mind and life, that cracks our souls and characters in half, that leads us to despair and anxiety and worse, that kind of chaos and havoc, and the kind of chaos and havoc that we see happening in a lot of city streets right now. The feeling of chaos and havoc we have in parts of our culture right now, our author, or excuse me, our enemy is the author of exactly that kind of chaos and havoc. So peace becomes a weapon in spiritual warfare. And we're given these shoes of the peace that comes from the good news of Jesus Christ. The image is cool. And again, when we put it together with what they would have seen on a normal basis, the Roman soldiers that are in the streets all the time, as part of the Roman uniform, uh, what they would wear on their feet were more like in their day what we would just call combat boots. They were several layers of leather around their feet and around their shins, but then they also had these special steel spikes or rivets on the soles of their shoes so that when they were engaged in hand-to-hand combat, they could actually dig themselves in and push themselves forward. Now, you don't put on combat boots to stay home, right? But look, guys, our enemy, our enemy, what our enemy is doing, we need to be wise to what our enemy is doing. Instead of the well-being and thriving that is offered in Jesus Christ, our enemy creates strife and violence. In Romans chapter 1, the last half to two-thirds of that chapter, Paul talks about what happens in the human heart and what happens in human circles and society and culture when we deny God and, and throw Him away. Then we're given over to our own devices, our own wisdom, our own abilities. And this is part of what happens. Romans 1, 28 and 29. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. Feels like the news, doesn't it? This is what our enemy does. When the human heart is given up to sin, and when the human heart is given up to the strategies of our enemy, 
There is strife and so much more. And the peace of God is something, guys, that is entirely different. So what of uh, the violence without any kind of obvious end in the streets of some of our cities? What of it? It makes our enemy giddy. It means he's winning, at least in these pockets, in these hearts, in these souls. He's having his way in those moments. But guys, something strikes me about how this works. It isn't just manifest as violence and chaos. There is a powerful spiritual lethargy that is hanging over our culture as well. While there really are some who will riot and burn cities every night, I believe that there are probably tenfold more who coast through a day's work, play video games all night, scroll through social media, watch porn on the internet, go bed, wake up, and repeat the cycle. Though this is an absence of violence, it is not peace. It is a hollow life that needs the fire of the life of Christ lit in it. But this is just as much a meaningless cycle that makes our enemy just as giddy, just as happy. So we put on these combat boots of peace. <laughs> what, a, what an interesting image Paul's given us. Because we march into this culture, guys, with the peace of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. The kind of news that can actually bring reconciliation and justice, that can actually spark purpose and courage in the hearts and minds and lives of God's people. The enemy's strategy is broken when a soul finds peace with Jesus Christ. The enemy's strategy is broken when a Christian finds bold purpose in the kingdom of God. And don't forget what Jesus said. The gates of hell fall at the advance of disciples of Jesus Christ. It falls at the advance of disciples of Jesus Christ. So we must learn, guys, how to cultivate the understanding, the belief, the, the place of rest and peace for us that knows that Jesus Christ is the sovereign Lord of all history. As Pastor Ryan mentioned this morning, He still is God. The same God yesterday, today, and forever. And that passage of Scripture that we're reminded of Every Advent season as we go into Christmas, this child is given us. A son is going to be born to you, the prophet Isaiah says. And he will be a wonderful counselor, everlasting father, mighty God, and prince of peace. And the government, the rule of all things, Isaiah says, will be on the shoulders of the prince of peace. So this is the peace that we can find in Christ. This is the bold purpose and meaning and courage that we can find and the peace that comes from the good news of Jesus Christ. And this is what we take into the world around us. This is what the world needs. And it's going to take faith. It's going to take trust because the battle is real. This kind of battle is fought on a daily basis. So he says then, 
After the shoes, it gives us the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. He says, in all things, in all circumstances, now take up the shield of faith. And that shield of faith is actually going to be able to protect you from every attack the enemy sends your way. Every flaming arrow, every flaming dart. So guys, we take up the shield of faith because the enemy is busy hurling things at us to cause us to stumble in our faith. So when we talk about faith, let's make sure we're clear again on what we mean by that, what Scripture means by that. Scripture, when it speaks of faith, it means to put trust in someone, to put confidence in someone. Again, faith is one of these words we use a lot in Christian circles, so much so it can get a little fuzzy around the edges. We don't know exactly what it means. The words in the text, the original text, literally mean to put trust in someone. To have full and complete confidence in someone. But this kind of trust in Christ is complete trust. Ultimate and absolute trust. We look at it like this. Any relationship, friendship to marriage to parent-child, any kind of genuine, meaningful relationship we have in our lives requires trust. Requires trust in that person's attention and love and care for us. Requires mutual trust and honesty between people. It requires that for that relationship to be healthy and to move forward and to be good. But with Christ, it's not just trust on that relational level. It's trust on every single conceivable level. So faith in God means some really powerful things. In fact, the book of Ephesians earlier on in chapter 2 spoke about the kind of trust that changes this soul, the trust, the faith that leads to salvation. So earlier on in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, Paul says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. God has given this grace. He's abounding in mercy to people even who hate Him. He's rich in mercy, and through Jesus Christ, He gives us this gift. It is by grace, through faith, that we find real right relationship with Jesus Christ. But guys, this faith, this trust, is not something that's just sort of exercised once at a moment of salvation, and then we just sort of muddle our way through the rest of life and and hopefully find ourselves in salvation, you know, in, in heaven at the day that we die. It's not that. It's a constant daily exercise of trust in Jesus and who he is. Paul says, at the moment of salvation, take up the shield of faith, and then you can put it down and you're going to be fine. That's not what he says. In all things, take up the shield of faith. So what do we trust for? We trust that God exists and that he created all things. We trust that Jesus is God in flesh and that God reconciles the world to himself in Jesus. We trust that the Holy Spirit is with us today to empower us and to guide us. We trust that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and that he saves me from my sin. We trust that Jesus is the way of life that is best for me and for everyone else. We trust that Jesus will never leave me and never forsake me. 
We trust that my eternity is secure in the presence of God because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we trust that Jesus is coming back soon, will judge the living and the dead, and will set up his perfect and eternal kingdom and rule forevermore. Why is this spiritual warfare? Because our enemy does two things with trust. He creates nagging doubt, and he creates trust in false things. Nagging doubt and trust in false things. Now, there's a level at which doubt or questions that creep into our heart as followers of Jesus Christ or people who are maybe even seeking and trying to figure out what Jesus is all about. There's a certain kind of that sort of doubt that can actually be something that strengthens our faith. We ask honest questions, we seek real answers, and we find the truth of Jesus Christ in the process. But doubt can also become a certain kind of rotten skepticism a snarky smokescreen and become an excuse for believing anything and everything except Jesus Christ. Keep your eye on that thought as you kind of make your way through your walk. This ability of people to believe anything and everything as true except Jesus Christ. This is the work of the enemy. The disciple James, the Apostle James, in James chapter 1, verses 6 through 8, he talks about doubt like this. But let him ask in faith. If you need wisdom from God, ask for it. And, but let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. This is the kind of doubt the enemy can create that can actually separate you from the things of Jesus Christ. So many people really will take everything as gospel except for the gospel. I am shocked at what people will take as gospel except for the gospel, right? The Christian author G.K. Chesterton put it like this, opponents of Christianity will believe anything except Christianity. This is the work of the enemy. And so it is in our world today. There are all these false hopes. There are all of these false idols, these false gods that keep presenting themselves to us as the kinds of things that will just fix everything for us if we just fund them enough, right? The promise of cradle-to-grave care in our political environment. It is impossible for a politician or a bureaucrat to do that. But surprisingly... God has already built into the human condition the institutions that do that for us. They're called family and spiritual family. There are at least three moments inside of a person's life when they are somehow connected to the church one way or another. Two or three moments, and it's interesting when they are. Birth, and baby dedication, marriage, and death. People who will never walk into the doors of a church will walk into the doors of the church to watch their grandkid get, dev- get, get committed to Christ, to watch their kids get married, and to bury someone that they love. God has actually, actually already built into the human condition the institutions that take care of us from cradle to grave, so to speak. The promise of perfect 
justice. If I can be just a little bit provocative this morning, like you can stop me at this point, I don't know. The chant, no justice, no peace, means there will never be peace. Because in this world, Jesus says, there's just going to be tribulation because you're looking for the wrong kind of peace. Usually when the promise of perfect, social, perfect justice is given to us, it usually means the forced silence of people that we disagree with or whom we can't control. God, however, has already provided for perfect justice in the person of Jesus Christ. Or this one, I love this one as it shows up in all kinds of different ways. The promise of a scientific fix that will take care of every human ill. The advance of technology will save us and will occupy our time and give us all of those dopamine and shots that we need to keep us happy and, and rot our brains, right? That just happens. The promise is to let us live longer and longer and longer. And I love this one. The promise is you can live longer and longer. The hope is you're going to be younger longer. The reality is we're older longer, right? Cure for our diseases. Usually what that means is we abort babies who don't look right. This is the kind of thing the world offers. But God has already provided for hope and meaning and purpose and security in our salvation. God has already provided for these things. Guys, our enemy is really good at making us skeptical about God and gullible about false gods. Our enemy is really good at doing that. So the shield of faith, trust in Jesus Christ, it counters every one of these nagging doubts. Every one of these temptations to put the trust of my life into the hands of gods who don't know what to do with it. The shield of faith guards me from all of that. And it keeps us connected to the truth that is in Jesus Christ alone. It keeps us connected to the source of our salvation and strength. We build this trust by getting to know Christ, by obeying Him and doing what He says, and we learn that He really can be trusted. I want to read from Psalm 115, nine verses long. It's a little bit longer than passages we normally read inside of a sermon, but I want, to, I want us to hear how the psalmist thinks about this. Trust in God versus trust in false idols. So Psalm 115, the first nine verses goes like this. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. For the sake of your steadfast love and faithfulness, we are not the saviors of this world. You alone are, O oh Lord. We are not steadfast love and faithfulness, but you are. Why should the nations say, well, where in the world is your God? I know where my God is. He is in the heavens, and he does anything he wants to do. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold. They are the work of human hands. They have mouths, but they don't speak. Eyes, but they don't see. They have ears, but they don't hear. Noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel. <clears throat> Feet, but do not walk. 
and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. Powerless, mute, and dead. O Israel, people of God, trust in the Lord. Here is their help and their shield. Here is their help and their shield. I want to finish with this thought that we had right at the very beginning again this morning. I believe it is possible that the two most important Christian virtues right now are courage and endurance. When the world comes to the church and wants the church to change, the world does not want Jesus Christ. When the world wants Jesus Christ, it needs a church that has not changed. Does that make sense? When the world comes to the church and demands that the church changes what it teaches and believes, it doesn't want Christ. But when people realize they need Jesus Christ, they need a church that has refused to change. So we walk into this world with the kind of peace that only Jesus Christ offers, that we have received and that we have experienced, and now we want others to have because we watch the turmoil and the struggle and the brokenness, and we realize they are hunting for meaning and peace and justice in all the wrong places, and it is a downward spiral of brokenness. And so the Christian walks into that with a different kind of peace. The enemy wants to separate us from Christ and the strength that comes from our salvation and our day-to-day walk with Jesus Christ. So he's very good at making us gullible about false gods. But they're powerless. They're impotent. They're blind. They're deaf. They're mute. We can't put our trust in those gods. Oh, people of God, let's put our faith in Jesus Christ. And there, only there, will we find our help and will we find the shield that protects us and keeps us for Christ. Let's pray.